We all think about what we eat. We plan our meals or count carbs or do any number of other things when it comes to what we put in our bodies. But do you ever think about the flavor of what you consume? Sure you do. What we eat or drink either tastes good or it doesn't. In fact, taste is the number one consideration in what we consume. Yet, there's more to it than just like or dislike. And there's even a whole industry dedicated to it. Flavor is memory. Flavor is feeling. Flavor is science. Flavor is art. Flavor is Fona. Welcome to Fona's Flavor University podcast, where we explore the science, artistry, and industry behind flavor. Today, we'll be talking to Jennifer Howell, Fona's Director of Regulatory Innovation. We'll discuss the regulatory landscape behind flavor. Hi, Jen. Hi, Corey. Good to see you. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me here. So I'm noticing a little something about your title here. It says regulatory innovation. I don't think innovation is usually something you see combined with regulatory. So why don't you introduce yourself and tell me why that innovation is is there? Sure, absolutely. Thanks, Corey. So that is definitely something I can say I'm a trailblazer in in the industry. I've never seen any other person in regulatory have that title. Part of the 21 years that I've been at Fona has been implementing the systems and tools that help a company like Fona innovate rapidly. So creating systems that allow flavorists to formulate to certain regulatory requirements on the fly or automating systems that can allow us to quickly create documents so that we can service customers faster or in some ways creating a new way of working in which we identify customer challenges and solve them using regulatory solutions. So innovation looks like a lot of different things in regulatory at Fona. So you didn't just start out with that title, obviously. How did you start at Fona? I came to Fona in 2000. Um, actually, it was the summer of 1999. I was one of the first summer interns. I was working in the flavor lab. Turns out uh, I was not meant to be in R&D. I do not enjoy significant decimal places. Uh, I will never be a baker. I will always be a chef where you just kind of throw things here and there into your food. So at the end of the summer, there was an opening for a kosher coordinator. I had recently gotten back as an exchange student from Spain. So I spoke Spanish and Fono had a significant amount of Spanish speaking employees. I had accidentally gotten a minor in Jewish studies because I took every class that this certain rabbi at my college offered because I just adored his teaching style. And then my major was philosophy. So I applied for the kosher coordinator position. And due to that unique group of talents and uh, abilities and knowledge, I got the job. In the years after that, I, you know, I established the kosher program at Fona, which meant establishing the first raw material database, for instance, establishing ways of ensuring that symbols could get printed on our labels. And then after that, the nutrition regulations came into play in the United States. The allergen regulations came into play for flavors and then a number of safety data sheet requirements and hazard communication implementations as well. So over the years, my job has stayed the same in many ways in which that case I'm implementing systems, but it's also progressed in that I'm able to do them on a grander scale and then also be more customer facing because as your expertise grows, you can spend more time sharing that expertise with customers. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. I know you love this question because it's your favorite thing to debunk or at least one of your things you like to debunk. Regulatory. When we hear regulatory, we think about rules and regulations and we think about, you know, you were talking about you're not a good person for measuring decimal points and whatever, <laughs> you know, and, and the elephant in the room is that regulatory is somewhat dry. But why is why is regulatory interesting? Why is it relevant? Yeah, you're, you're completely correct. Regulatory is at heart based on 
almost unintelligible texts written in horribly dry governmental regulations. However, the label, which contains the regulatory information, is where consumers meet their food. So the consumers can't have the dry government regulations interact with them on their food. And so we can figure out better ways for them to understand those requirements by offering more concise information. So the labels are really about communicating to the consumers what they need to know about their food. And regulatory is about working with developers to ensure that the required information is on the labels. And a lot of times that involves communicating and simplifying the ideas that are coming from the regulations into the spirit of what they really mean and ensuring that the things on the label are truthful and not misleading. That can be very dry. It can also look like a lot of fun in the case of Fona's regulatory. So when you say it looks like a lot of fun, what does that mean? So it means that we love nothing better than debating different flavor names. For instance, how many berries would you require in a mixed berry flavor? So many berries. Not just one, two. I I would at least hope for three. So that's the two camps. There's the two people and then there's the three or more people. Um, It's not called a couple of berries. So I am clearly on the three or more side. Another fun example is forest berry. What kind of berry would you require in a natural forest berry flavor? I would assume, judging by the title, berries that grow in a forest. Yeah, like... Is that all berries? Is that like elderberry? Right. That- so let's let's talk about raspberries specifically. Are raspberries a forest berry? Because some people feel feel they're more like meadow berries. They're actually on that little vergy bit in between a forest and a meadow. They're not actually in the forest themselves. Whereas a blueberry, berries, please. <laughs> exactly. Whereas a blueberry is much more clearly a forest berry. I would never think of. I know it's so that much fun. Kind of thing, and that would definitely. Be, I'm part of the three berry camp. <laughs> now you know. However, I will say that if I have a handful of berry, I'm going to call it berries. <laughs> so then we get into gram- grammar and grammar. Oh, we problems, love to do that too. How about s'mores? Is there a apostrophe after the s or not? When I casually spell it, yes. Yes, there is. Do you know how much our some of our systems hate that little apostrophe? Oh. Oh, yes. Speaking from a tech side of things, <laughs> apostrophes and any kind of special it's character. It's problem. Mm-mm. I know. We don't do it. So that's the kind of thing regulatory does, is try to figure out ways to solve for any issue, including technology issues. I can vouch that I've gone to you on more than, more than one occasion. Well, that's right. We do spend a lot of time talking. Because mm. that's the other interesting thing about regulatory at Phone is we also own the product development software. So... We've got certain regulations that we need to follow is kind of what I'm getting from all this. Mm-hmm. You know, there are certain things that need to appear on labels. What, what are those regulations like? What are those rules like? What is something that's hard and fast about the regulatory field that needs to happen each time a flavor is created? Yeah, absolutely. So there are definitely some things that are hard and fast that are absolutely must have. So you must have allergen labeling on your product to ensure that the information is there. However, the way that you do that allergen information involves a lot of gray area. So it's very hard for me to point to one thing that is completely sure that doesn't have a lot of gray area in interpretation. Every single company that works in flavors are on a spectrum from conservative to liberal, and each company has to decide how much risk they're willing to accept. When it comes to allergens, for example, you have to think about things like soybean oil. Soybean oil is highly processed and deodorized to remove the proteins that cause the allergic reaction. Therefore, most companies are willing to support the fact that soybean oil is no longer an allergen. And in fact, the FDA stands behind that interpretation as well. However, different ingredients are in different parts of that spectrum, and each company kind of has to identify 
the implementation of what these regulations are. Not that it needed to be, and you're kind of doing it, you know, off to the side, but you're, you're legitimizing why regulatory is what it is. But for, <laughs> for, for you, other than, you know, allergens, keeping people safe, why is regulatory so important? I feel that regulatory is the secret tool to solving problems. I think that regulatory people are in an area of intersection where we work with all of the customers, we work with all of the segments, we work with all of the claims. So when there is a new trend popping up or a new consumer demand that we see across multiple customers, we are in a unique position to call that out so that we can maybe create marketing tools, so that maybe we can create a flavor university, but more importantly, so that we can identify that trend to our R&D team and our R&D team can provide those solutions to the customer. So for example, recently there's been a spike in pesticide interest. So cannabis customers wanna know more about pesticides. They are not as familiar working with flavors as a lot of the other food companies are, and they don't necessarily understand that flavors can solve that challenge for them very easily. So what a flavor company can do is we can utilize more of the flavor chemicals that are highly derived, highly refined, and use those because they're less likely to use, to contain the pesticide residues that something like an orange oil would do. So regulatory would identify the need. We would educate the cannabis consumers on what type of flavor to ask for. And then we would educate the R&D team to understand how to formulate for those challenges. So you're constantly talking with the customer, yes. talking with other regulators, getting things. I assume that's what you guys call yourself. Regulators. regulators you know? Round up. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think regulatory is a hidden superpower and, and it should not be considered just a cost area. It should be considered part of revenue generation. And that was one of the big things that I was proud to do at FONA is we moved from the operations side where we were seen as a cost into revenue generation, where we're seen as a driver of pipeline, where we can get additional opportunities because of the things that we do special. Now, since you're talking to those clients, you're probably conveying things from larger governmental or regulatory bodies. Who are those bodies and how does flavor fit into that equation? So in the, in the United States, flavors are regulated by a lot of different groups. And a lot of what we do is navigating the terrain between those different regulatory agencies. So the FDA has primary responsibility for food in the United States that includes flavors. However, we are also frequently working with AFCO. AFCO regulates, or I should say recommends, guidances for working with flavors in pet food. We are also working with um, the TTB, which is another government organization that oversees alcoholic beverages. But I'd say the, the one that's probably most important from a flavor standpoint is called FEMA. It's Flavors and Extract Manufacturers Association, not the FEMA that you're used to talk, hearing about. In fact, there was this one time, I have to tell this story, we were in North Carolina for a FEMA meeting. And it, they would always have a special night event, right, where you could sign up for the special event. And we were, had horse carriages and we could all sit in the horse carriages and they had a big FEMA banner. Well, this happened to be right after the hurricane. And so as we were going through the streets of North Carolina, we got booed and we kept having to say, no, we're the other FEMA. No, we're the other FEMA. <laughs> so FEMA in the United States has been authorized by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, to oversee the compliance of flavors in the United States. The FDA recognized that flavors require such high level of expertise that either they had to invest heavily to get that staff 
or they could rely on associations to have that expertise. So FEMA in the United States combines all of our skills together to ensure that these ingredients are analyzed, that they're safe, and that we have established safe ways of working with these ingredients across the industry. So speaking of disasters and just things that are kind of current picture, current going on, and I've talked to our last two guests about this, obviously COVID's probably changing your landscape, changing your view. So let's Let's kind of move over into what's currently going on in the regulatory landscape as far as, you know, COVID and what, what, how it's differing or different from what we've been experiencing. Yeah, so on the regulatory change side, it was really odd. Um, part of it was COVID. Part of it was the administration that was in control in the United States. But regulations kind of stopped forming for a while or they kind of slowed down significantly. With the administration change, we were really curious to see what regulations may be happening One of the ones we addressed early was the changes to allergen labeling. There's going to be the potential to label sesame as the, instead of the big eight, it'll be the big nine and sesame will be required to be labeled on the ingredient statement. Just a spoiler alert, flavors don't use a lot of sesame ingredients. So there's very little impact to the flavor industry, which is kind of fun because if you're working in a consumer products company, you hear like an allergen change like sesame and there's quite a bit of panic about what are we going to do? How are we going to adapt? But in the flavor industry, we're able to adapt much faster. So now that sesame is part of the big nine, how do we convey that to the customer? What about that are we are we telling them or how are we keeping them regulated and calm about this? Yeah, so what from a regulatory standpoint, what I might do is I might see that the sesame change might be a big issue for the customers that we work with. So even though their flavor might not be impacted, the other ingredients that they have might be. So what a company like Fona might do is identify a way of replacing the sesame in their product with ingredients that taste like sesame but don't contain sesame. So a highly refined and deodorized sesame oil, for example, would fit the FDA requirements for a non-allergenic oil, and they could use that in their product instead of the sesame and remove the allergen labeling and not have to change it on their ingredient statement potentially. So those are the kind of solutions that we would work with the developers and maybe even offer proactively because our, our customers might not even know they could do that. And so we might create a solution or a push fact, I think we just created something just now that we might actually be able to push to customers as well to solve their problems. So it's important to stay up to date with this information. Now, when you have this new information or this new regulatory issue or whatnot, what kind of impact does that have on the label? It depends on the type of regulatory change. A lot of the regulatory changes we're seeing would impact our customers, but wouldn't necessarily impact the consumers. For instance, in 2015, OSHA implemented GHS labeling on all finished products. So now our customers receive packages that contain labels that make the material look like it might be dangerous or unsafe to use. And sometimes it might scare them. So some of the work that we do is trying to help customers understand how to use the products that we make safely. And if they don't have the equipment to use that ingredient safely, we can work with them to mitigate the ingredient and reduce the hazards by adding more carriers and solvents and non-hazardous ingredients. That way we can minimize the impact, for instance, in their lab. If they just wanted to use glasses and goggles and a safety shirt, we have ways to formulate for that requirement so it meets their needs for safe use, not just for the end consumer. So with that information, what's, what's on the horizon? What's coming up for us that we can see in regulatory new and exciting? 
So one of the things that I, I feel is, is going to be the best of both kind of concept for the flavor industry is consumers seem to be becoming much more comfortable with the term natural flavor on their ingredient statement. So we did a survey for consumers and we found that 80% of consumers consider natural flavor to be a clean ingredient. And that was great news for the flavor industry. However, we also recognize that there is a consumer desire to see on the label what's making their food taste like food. So for instance, let's say you're eating a mint cookie. A consumer would love to see mint in the ingredient statement. And what a flavor company can do is offer that mint in the ingredient statement so that you can list it on your label, but then also add the, the special magic that the natural flavor adds to make that mint taste different than the other mints that are on the market or to stabilize it from a seasonal standpoint or to make it more homogenous and better soluble in the bar that it's going into. And so I love that solution. That's a best of both where the consumer wins because they get more transparency. They get to see the mint on the label, but then the food products company also wins because they get a product that's much more functional, much more stable and much more sustainable potentially than the, the mint extract itself alone. So what happens when we can't naturally produce that flavor? What happens if we have to do a substitution? Like, for example, I know that we had a vanilla shortage or a vanilla bean shortage recently. What are some things that, you know, we were able to do to overcome that? That was one of my favorite innovations that I've seen in the last 10 years in the flavor industry. When um, the vanilla crop was negatively impacted in Madagascar through a variety of societal as well as climate issues, the industry responded with such creativity that it invented a whole new class of flavors. As a result of the vanilla crisis, the birthday cake flavor was born. So a birthday cake flavor is every American can imagine what that tastes like right now if I tell you what a birthday cake is. Everyone knows it's this creamy, sweet, vanilla-type flavoring, meaning it tastes like vanilla, but nowhere on the package is it claiming that it contains vanilla. So you can give the consumer that taste driver of liking that they love. It tastes like delicious birthday cake, but it doesn't have to contain the vanilla. And so all of those creative ways of working are how we can best use our resources in a more responsible way. I love when I hear about mermaid flavors where the color on the front of the pack is indicating the way it tastes, but you don't know what the mermaid's going to taste like. And we can be completely flexible about the ingredients that we're using and create these products together. Now, I'm a big fan of kind of urban legends and you know, hearsay kind of conspiracy things. And I heard something about vanilla that has to do with an animal that kind of looks like that. Oh, no. Yes. The infamous castorium. I'm going to use the nice term castorium. So yes, there are certain podcasters like yourself who enjoy spreading rumors because they are very appealing from a clickbait type standpoint. So there has been a widespread rumor about how all vanilla flavors contain extracts from beavers. And it, it was traditionally called castorium. And if you look up the use of castorium in the flavor industry, yes, it was traditionally an ingredient used in vanilla. However, these days, all technologies have changed over the last hundred years. And beaver extract is one of those technologies that has changed Beavers were an endangered species for quite a long time. Not only that, but the process of getting that extract from that beaver is very unpleasant. If you have a small dog who sometimes has uncomfortable hindquarters, it is a similar process to what you bring him to the vet to do. And then additionally, it's expensive and the supply chain is challenging and it's quite kind of gross. 
right? No one really wants these beaver extracts in their food anymore. I don't want to see that in my life. No. And so the flavor industry does not use castorium. We have way better tools that are much more functional, much cheaper, and do not have the negative potential that castorium has. And as much as I love a good conspiracy theory, I love debunking them even more. So thank you for that. Absolutely. All right. So we've debunked that legend. We've debunked that rumor. Let's let's talk about good advice instead. Let's talk about the best advice you might have for a customer or a consumer when it comes to regulatory. So I, I think the current environment when it comes to food is very challenging for a consumer to navigate. I think as a consumer, we are increasingly taking responsibility for the choices we're making for the food that we're buying and the food that we're consuming. And the claims that we're seeing in our ingredient statements or on our labels aren't always informing us of what we need to know in terms that we understand. So from a consumer standpoint, there's this desire for more information so that we can make better choices. From a consumer products company standpoint, the desire is to be able to better inform those consumers and to meet the needs of those consumers. And so what regulatory can do is help you bridge that. So for instance, I would recommend standing behind the use of flavors as an amazing technology, just like you would um, encouraging people to use an iPhone instead of a rotary phone. iPhones are objectively better than the rotary phone. Flavors are objectively better because of the skills and the tools that we've polished over the years than their old fashioned counterparts. So stand behind the science. However, we also have tools and ways of, of educating your consumer on what flavors are so that they feel more comfortable with it. For instance, flavor chemicals are the things that make one lemon taste different than the lemon that is next to it. So you have two lemons on a tree, you pluck both of them at the same time, you squeeze them into juice, they are not going to taste the same. The reason they taste different is because of the growing conditions that they had. And those growing conditions create different levels of the flavor chemicals that make the lemons taste like lemon. So if you are a consumer and you are looking at a lemon product and it has natural flavor on the ingredient statement, it is easier as a consumer goods company to explain to them what natural flavor is. If you have that understanding that flavor chemicals come from foods and vegetables, we basically break those fruits and vegetables down into Lego blocks. And then we take those Lego blocks and rebuild them into all sorts of things like the Taj Mahal or the Statue of Liberty. And so while the citral that you taste in your product might not have come from lemon due to crop conditions or crop sources or climate change, it's still citral, still tastes the same, even if it's come from a different plant source. So benzaldehyde, for example, may come from cherries. Cherries are picky. Cherries are divas. Cherries are finicky. They are hard to grow. They're hard to get consistent. They get moldy so fast, right? You buy those delicious big cherries. You're like, oh, great. I didn't eat them in three days. They're already bad. Well, benzaldehyde is abundant in, in tons of other plant sources. So we will get benzaldehyde from a different plant source, and it still tastes like cherries. It's just not coming from cherries. Now, what you have to watch out for is you can't use that benzaldehyde to make a cherry claim on your front of pack. You still need to use cherry to claim cherry. But if you were making a if you're making a fruit flavor and you wanted cherry notes, then you can introduce that benzaldehyde. So educating the customer so they can educate the consumer is probably the biggest advice I have. Stand behind the technology and create that education. Help them understand so that we can all work together and keep this ingredient. So as we're approaching the end here, I'm going to ask you some quick fire questions. Oh, no. They're going to be simple, I promise. Simple-ish. So let's start off. Favorite flavor? Root beer. I am from the East Coast. I'm drinking it right here. Seconded. Least favorite flavor? Olives. It makes me want to barf. Green, black, all of them? All of them. Yeah. Why do you think that you love root beer so much other than being from the Northeast? 
I love the story behind root beer too. I love the fact that it started off as like an extract from sassafras and then the sassafras was identified to be a dangerous ingredient like Dr. Bob likes to talk about. And then the flavor industry created a replacement for sassafras that is methyl salicylate and it tastes like wintergreen. So I love wintergreen as an ingredient and I love root beer as an ingredient. And it's not a surprise that they have a common child chemical. What you guys can't see right now is that she loves root beer so much that she's literally adjusting her root beer cup yes, to be more comfortable. I'm petting right my root beer as I speak about my root beer. So what's a flavor out there that a lot of people love that you just can't get on board with? Avocado. It's so trendy and yet it just tastes like green butter. I don't understand avocado. Yeah, I get that. Unless it's guacamole, I'm not. Oh, guacamole, right? You yeah. add some spices and stuff and, yeah. then get, and then it tastes like something. Exactly. Yeah, no, I totally get that. Sauces, extra flavors. Mm-hmm. That's Not me. just grease. Yeah, 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 I agree. I agree. All right. Uh, so that's it for Fona's Flavor University podcast. Thanks to our special guest, Jennifer Howell. Please tune in next time when we'll be talking to Molly Zimmerman and Jenna Tisch about flavor science and building flavor. Until then, the flavor of Fona is the flavor of life. So go out and taste it.